0: Well, welcome. Welcome to the Colossians study. We are so excited that you guys have carved out some time to do this study and to find time in your week to pour over these pages. I know the Lord will, will bless you. Have you ever walked up to a conversation and it's in the middle of it and you're listening and you're starting to gather some thoughts and some information and, and you're kind of going, whoa, wow. And, and you're starting to make some conclusions about what you're hearing. And, and you're thinking, wow. Well, well, and, and, but those wrong conclusions are because you don't have background. You don't have all the information. You have bits and pieces. And we, we don't want... To jump into a conversation and walk away with assumptions. And so today, what I want to do is give you an overview, an introduction of the book of Colossians. Because Colossians is kind of like a conversation, it's a letter, it's someone conveying information to another set of people. And it's taken, this conversation, over a letter. And if you got a letter in the mail, you wouldn't just necessarily tear it open and go page three page oh I'm gonna start right here and start reading in page three and forget about page one and page two you'd be lost in the midst of this letter about what's going on and so we want to start from the beginning in Colossians and we want to have you understand what is this book about and about who are the people what was the culture all of this background the individual part of this letter so that when you do study the individual pieces like the third page you're not lost because you have had time to see the whole picture and this process is going to help you to see this book through the eyes of the first century time period that was when the letter was written and we want to know what was going on in the church to have a clear picture of why paul said what he said to them we want to know the reason behind why he said what he said and to who he wrote it to, and why did he use the style that he used to write this this book? What point is Paul making throughout this letter that he wants his readers to apprehend, that he wants us to apprehend? That's what I hope to cover today. So let's talk about who wrote the letter. Starting in chapter 1, in verse 1, we see that Paul begins by stating his name. But he also states his title, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's God's messenger. He is one sent with authority. So we can know that God has ordained him to write these words, to pen them, so we can hear truly the voice of God. And there are several things throughout this letter that make us realize it's Paul that is the author. So I want to Run through some of those verses so that you can see how we can have confidence that it's Paul. In the first place in chapter 1 and 23, we see that Paul is speaking in the first person. And he says that he is a ministry of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. He's referring to himself that way. He also says in verse 24 that he's a representative of Christ's suffering. He's conveying himself and who he is in Christ and what he is doing. In verses 25 and 26, he says he's a steward of the mystery. He's a steward of God's mystery. And if you go into chapter 2, verse 1, he says that he hasn't met them. So we're seeing these personal, um, like a conversation. He's saying things about himself in regard to what he does and He even says to them in chapter 4, pray for me. Pray that I might make the word clear. So he's asking um, them for something. In chapter 4, in verses 7 through 15, he mentions several men as ministry associates, those that he has interaction with that are involved in the same um, mission of the gospel. And he even urges one man to complete his work. But as he finishes the letter, he says, Remember my imprisonment, and I wrote this with my own hand. Some say it was just the greeting that he wrote. There's all kinds of debate out there, but we can know that this is from Paul. There's just too much evidence within the book to, to think otherwise. Well, let's look at what the date and the style of the book that the, the Colossians was written. When did Paul write this letter? Well, that very last verse, 418, where Paul says to remember his imprisonment, tells us that he wrote the book or this letter in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. In around the summer of 58 AD, Paul is under trial, and he appeals to Caesar for a trial in Rome. And while he is in prison, the Philippian church sends aid to Paul through Epaphroditus. In Philippians 418, hear this verse. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Scholars believe that Epaphras, who is mentioned in Colossians, and whom I will speak about more further, is the same person as, the, as in Philippians, known as Epaphroditus. The thought is that Epaphras, first stopped off on his hometown to Colossae on his way to Rome with the aid for Paul. While he's in Colossae, he hears of a new false teaching that is threatening the church. He comes to Paul in Rome, not only with the aid to Paul, but he comes with news of the Colossian church. He believes, and we believe, that it This time frame was around 60 to 62 AD. Well, Paul tells or hears from Epaphras his concerns of the false teaching that is rubbing up against this Colossian church. Well, this prompts Paul to write a letter to this church. And and the words that he uses, the method of his words that he uses to confront the false teaching really points to his style. He starts by pointing to truths. He wants the church to look at the truths about Jesus Christ, the truths about the gospel. He wants to encourage this church to hold tightly to these truths and to live in light of them. So Paul writes the letter. He commissions Tychicus to bring the letter to Colossae. Four seven says that he that Tychicus will bring. This letter or tell all about the activities and the things that are going on. Well, who is this letter written to? To whom? Who did he write to? Well, whenever you read and study a book of the Bible, it has to be done through the eyes of the first recipients. You want to get into their heads. You want to know what was life like back then to make sense of why Paul is saying some of the things before we could ever begin to see it through our eyes today. So let's look at a little bit of the cultural and aspect of who these people are in the time period. Well, the book was written um, for the Colossians who resided in Colossae. Colossae was part of the Roman Empire, and it was a, tr- a travel route from Ephesus. It was a main highway, and there were two other cities very close by, Laodicea and Hierapolis. They were considered the Tri-Cities, and these three cities were very close in proximity. But because the highway went through Colossae, that was a bigger city. But during this time period, the road changed, and it started going more towards the other two cities, and Colossae began to diminish. So we see this time period of slow travel, but also how highways are depends on the growth of a city and whatnot. Well, Paul has never visited Colossae. And in Colossians 2.1, we see that he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those in Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen my face. Paul was not the founder of the church. The one who most likely started the church was Epaphras, the the gentleman that I mentioned earlier. We see Paul warmly commends him in this letter look at verses seven and eight of chapter one it says just as you learned it from epaphras our fellow beloved servant he is a faithful minister of christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit so you see epaphras is making known to paul not only this church but of what he's done in the church and so Epaphorus is likely a convert of Paul's, from Paul's time of ministry in Ephesus during the third missionary journey, which was recorded in Acts 19. Let me read to you what was going on with Paul in Acts 19, where he was preaching the gospel and strengthening the believers. Acts 19, verses 8-10. to And he, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, "'reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. "'But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, "'speaking evil of the way before the congregation, "'he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them "'and began reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. "'And this continued for two years, "'so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord "'and both Jews and Greeks.' Colossae, Ephesus, all of this is in Asia. And then down to verse 20 of 19, it said, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we can surmise that Epaphras heard Paul in Ephesus. I don't know how long he would have been there, but if Paul was there for at least two years or more, It would have been a chance for him to know him and to grow and to be strengthened in the gospel and to understand these truths and then take it back to his hometown of Colossae. And we know it was his hometown because in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul is referencing Epaphras and saying that of his concern for them as he is one of them. And so the word is telling us that Epaphras is most likely the founder of this church. And most likely also of Laodicea and Heriopolis because they are so close. Well, Epaphras has a great concern for this church and he wants them to continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to hold fast to him. So, what do we know about these people in the church? Well, let's look at chapter 1 in verse 2. Paul says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So, from that verse, we see that he's writing to faithful believers who are in this town of Colossae, in this church. Look at verses 4 and 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love for which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul's informing us of who these people are. They're Christians in this church. They've heard the gospel, and they've responded to the gospel in faith. They are producing fruit. These are markers of the Christian faith. They're demonstrating faith, love, and hope. It's Paul is commending them for what, epaphras has said he has seen in them so these are all fruits so the recipients are ones who are growing in the christian faith they seem to be faithful well the church is growing and it has been doing well but now it's being threatened there's another voice that's rising up and it wants to minimize jesus christ it wants to minimize his supremacy It wants to minimize his sufficiency both as a savior and as one who can bring change in the life of a believer. Now hold that thought because as we go into the next section of a connecting thread, we're going to come back to it. But I want to say a little thing about a connecting thread. Every Bible has a main theme. We call it a connecting thread in this study. Why a connecting thread? Because it connects to something that is part of the same. And in the Bible, there's a main theme that runs through page one all the way through page end of, gen- of Revelation. And the main theme of the Bible, that main thread, is, is God's glory as it's seen in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The main character of the story is Jesus Christ. God's Son, who came and lived a righteous life, was crucified for our sins, rose again conquering sin and death and thereby providing a way to God. 1 Peter 3:18 says it well. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. The main theme of the Bible must be upheld, and that's what the word Colossians theme will connect to. It will Point back to that main theme. And the main thread that Colossians has, you're going to see it within the pages of the book as Paul confronts the problem, the reason for writing this letter. This false teaching in this church is a voice that is minimizing Christ in all that he has done. So the warning that Paul gives are clues. They're clues for us in this letter for the purpose for it being written. Let's look at some of these warnings that Paul gives. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, Do not be deluded by per- persuasive argument. There's an argument going on that's trying to make you think differently. It wants you to think something else. Look at verse 8. It's talking about not letting you take captive according to human by philosophy or human um, mm-hmm. traditions or the elementary sprin- principles of the world and not according to Christ. So so there, there's a thought out there. There's a philosophy out there that's contrary to what Christ has already said. And they're wanting you to think that way. They want you to believe that. They, look at um, verse 16 where it talks about not letting no one pass judgment or to question you concerning foods or drink or a festival or a new moon. So so they're putting these rules onto you. Don't eat this, but eat that. And and they're wanting you to add this to whatever else you are believing concerning Christ. And then in eighteen they're talking about not you know, don't be disqualified by um, you know, you want to believe, the, the, the voices are saying, believe in angels and the visions and asceticism. You know, trying to make yourself do things to be whatever. So what is happening in this church? They're wanting to add rules. They're wanting to add traditions and aesthetic disciplines. They want to add obser- observance of certain foods as well as certain kinds of spiritual woohoo knowledge that has nothing to do with Christ. The threat here is that the false teachers are adding to what Christ has done. It's Christ plus something. Christ plus eat this food and you'll go to heaven. It's Christ plus don't do that and you'll go to heaven. It's Christ plus whatever they put out there. That is the voice that is penetrating into this church trying to minimize who Christ is. Well, Paul brings three things to bear to counter this. So let's look at those three things. His main focus in this letter is to show forth that Christ alone is enough. Christ is alone enough in three ways. First of all, he points to the supremacy of Jesus. Look at chapter 1 in verses 15, starting there, and we'll go through 19. Remember that Paul has just prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in every respect, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants them to know God. He wants them to know Christ. So he begins a list of amazing truths about Jesus and We start in 15 where he says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. 16 says by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He, all things were created through him. All things are created for him. 17 says he is before. For all things. And in him, all things hold together. 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. In everything, he is preeminent. Boom. He is supreme. There is none other. In fact, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, Paul right away is saying that Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. He has first place in everything. There is no one or thing that is more supreme than Jesus. He's our head. It's his voice that we want to listen to. So that's his first point. Jesus is supreme. The second point that Paul hits is that he speaks of the work that comes from Christ alone. That's, he wants them to remember that to be reconciled with God, to be at peace... With God, one must be saved by the blood of Christ. So look at verses 13 and 14, where we see this reality of the gospel, what has taken place through Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved son. 14 says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you go down to verse 20, we see that through Christ's reconciliation, all things take place. And he makes peace through his blood on the cross. Christ's reconciliation in verse 22 comes from his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We see how Christ alone is who brings salvation. He even talks about it some more in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. Let me read those for you. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in a powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is reminding the Colossians that they don't need to add anything to what Christ has done. His death on the cross is sufficient to bring us to God. He alone is sufficient for salvation. He alone brings reconciliation. He brings forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Christ did this and we must put our faith in him and believe in this trusted work. And that alone and not have to add anything else. Well, what is Paul's third point that he moves on to? It's his last point that he wants to help them to remember, that Christ will restore God's image within the believers, which makes him alone sufficient for, self, for sanctification. Well, sanctification is that big Bible word, which basically means growing in Christ-likeness. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you and begins to bring about the holiness of God. Back in the day, in the creation, when sin entered the picture during the fall, it marred God's image within man. When, when God created man, he said, let's create him in our image. We are to be God's image bearers, to image forth his likeness. That is to point back to who God is. But what we demonstrate daily is the fact that God's image is broken. It's broken in us every time that we do not think like we should. It's broken every time we don't obey as we should. And it's broken when we do not love others as we should or love God. In short, we see the defacing of God's image in all of those places where sin distorts how we were created to function. But guess what? Jesus is the perfect image of God. Because he has no sin that is going to distort God's image. He is the exact representation of who God is. And that is why Paul keeps pointing to Christ. He wants this church to look to Jesus, to know him, to be imitators of him. So he tells us in chapter 3 how we should think. He says we are to set our minds on things above, place our hearts on things above, And he tells us what we should do. We are to put off sin, put on righteousness. We have the old self that's now there's a new self. We're to live in light of that. It's how we can live as believers in the context of relationships. By loving them, being at peace with one another, forgiving. Christ is the one that makes that possible, that unity. Well, as we seek to depend on Christ through these practices, the Holy Spirit goes to work to bring about a renewal, a restoration in part of the image of God within us. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10. It says, Do not lie to one another. Lost my point. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. He does this renewal, this transformation, through the renewing of one's heart and mind as one seeks to spend time in the Bible. Renewal takes place as we behold Christ within the pages of Scripture. You have to know your Creator in order for His image to be seen within you. Do you remember the prayer in chapter 1 where? It, he says, to increase in the knowledge of God. That is what this study is about, to know God, to know Christ, to know how he thinks, how he responds, and, and, and why he does it that way. It's, it's really about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in respect, all respect. That's where we look to first, and then he puts it all into place. And so Paul makes it a point to proclaim Christ. We must feast our eyes on Christ, on what he did. And as we do, we see the power of Christ go to work upon our holiness, our sanctification. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 28 and 29, where we see that reality of Christ in you at work In Paul's mission. He says, we proclaim him, meaning Christ, And warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is reminding these Colossians, he wants them to know that they can become mature in Christ if they hold tightly to Christ and not add anything to him. Paul wants them to see Christ as their head their authority, the only voice they listen to. He alone is their Lord and King. After all, he did transfer us into his kingdom. And it is Christ's words that we want to heed and none other. So the main connecting thread for this book that we want you to keep in mind as you read and study it, Christ alone is supremely sufficient for salvation and salvation or sanctification. So let me break it back down. The connecting thread basically states Christ alone is supreme. Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Christ alone is sufficient for sanctification. Well, now now you have some background information to help you make sense of this conversation that Paul is having in this letter. And we want you to remember it. And so as you dig into the book and you begin to look At the the individual passages, you'll begin to see this come off the pages of of the text, just how supreme Christ is. Read this letter over and over. Become as familiar with it as you can, and always be praying as Paul did for this church. And I'm going to end with his prayer, that it might be what Paul and God will do for us, that Paul is praying for them, will pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would fill us all with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of you, to please you, to bear fruit in every good work, and that we might increase in the knowledge of God, of you, Lord, that you would help us in this endeavor as we work through the pages of Colossians. May you be glorified. May you give us eyes to see that glory. And may it be a means of causing us to respond in a manner that's worthy of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.